It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you. And uh, our guest today, Beth Young, who is editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Hey, Joe. How are you? Good to have you. Denise Civiletti, editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. How are you today? And our first timer, who's not a first, he's definitely a veteran of journalism on the East End, Bob Lipa, who's the sports editor of the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Bob. Hi, guys. Good morning. Thanks for having Welcome. me. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. So, you know, we were talking about it off air that that there's not a whole lot new to say, probably, but I feel like we should start with COVID uh, since it's the thing that's foremost on everybody's minds. And I, I guess the new development this week was that we have all the kids back in school now. And, uh, you know, it, but it seems like the debate is still going on, Denise, right? And especially up your way, uh, there's still some folks who are very uh, determined uh, to challenge the mask mandates that the states put in place. Uh, yes, there are. There are members of the community who've been to uh, school board meetings and continue to come to school board meetings to um, advocate against the mask mandate that the Riverhead School Board actually imposed before the governor did um, last month. And um, it, that vote was a, a vote to adopt a, a plan that was um, presented by the superintendent of schools. And it was a, a split vote. It was a 4-3 vote. Um, but but and, Denise, um, isn't, isn't that moot now because the governor's put a statewide mask mandate in place? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the reopening plan's not moot. I mean, I think it, you know, it conforms to the governor's plan, essentially, but, um, you know, contains other things beyond beyond mask. And uh, so um, one of the one of the three members of the board that 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 voted against adopting the plan um, this week asked to ask the school board to. Uh, you know, kind of acknowledging that they they wouldn't be interested in joining that litigation that was filed by the Massapequa Union Free School District and local Valley School uh, Locust Valley School District to join that litigation, which uh, is challenging the um, Department of Health regulation um, authorizing the commissioner to uh, the commissioner of health to impose a mask mandate in schools um, and other places. And um, as you know, the commissioner of health did that at the request of of Governor Hochul. And um, so this, these two school districts are suing to set that aside or attempt to set that aside. And um, Riverhead, I don't think there's any inclination of nobody on the board. It's not a majority of the board's not going to vote to, uh, you know, approve joining the litigation. But this board member, uh, his name is Chris Dorr. He's a longtime board member. He asked that the board write a uh, letter of support um, for the to these school districts supporting their litigation. Um, and um, they, the board president said that they would talk about it at, at the next meeting, but um, I don't think there's any inclination to do that. I don't know. Um, but at, at the same meeting, a member of the community uh, who actually ran for school board in May um, and uh, has been outspoken about um, the mask issue and um, parents' rights and freedom of choice. Um, don't call her anti-mask because it's not about that, she says. Um, but um, she she uh, handed the school board a letter on the letterhead of 
uh, an organization called SOS Save Our Schools Riverhead. And um, we tried to report on, you know, the extent of their membership and things like that. SOS is, I think, a fairly new organization to save our schools, but it does exist in other places, including uh, in Smithtown. Um, and, um, you know, she is that the, the same group that was supporting different school board candidates in, in the in the spring? Um, um, that, no, that was, that was a Riverhead Parents. I for, sorry, I forgot the name of it, but uh, it was about a Last I saw, under 200 members, 100-something members that, yeah, you're right, Bill, there was a, a group supporting um, school board candidates, I think, including this person and her running mate uh, who are involved with, um, well, uh, she's involved with this. I don't know about the running mate. But anyway, uh, this letter is demanding that the school district in Riverhead actually join the law school, the, the lawsuit as a uh, plaintiff against the state and uh, demanding that they um, get a, a free consultation with the law firm and she, uh, that filed that lawsuit um, and saying that, you know, that they our, our outreach is island-wide and committed to the protection of parental choice. And, uh, you know, we're not going to relinquish our rights to self-governance without a fight, claiming so that the state, the state rule is illegal. That's what I wanted to ask. Yeah. Me. She, she, you said... Um, uh, one of the proponents says, don't call me anti-mask. So can, can you articulate what is the position here? It, it has more to do with, there's a lot of conversation here, just to, to try and do it objectively to examine this. The, the other side's argument is that parents should have the ultimate right to make these decisions for their kids, right? Is that, is that that's exactly argument? That's exactly what they're saying. It's, it's my, you know, it's like the my body, my choice with the vaccine. It's my child, my choice, uh, you know, and there was quite a number of people at the school board meeting last month when the uh, reopening plan was voted on. I mean, there were you know quite a number of people in the audience, um, including uh, you know a deputy town attorney from Riverhead, who, who you know were there to like you know say that these are my children and I don't want them to wear masks. And they had a lot of different reasons for you know, why they were opposed to masks. But the, Wait, what were some the, of them? What were some of the reasons? Well, uh, some of them were, you know, they don't work. Um, they pose a hazard to children. They talked about, um, you know, breathing inside of a mask and carbon dioxide, which- Which has been debunked has fairly, been debunked. Yeah, fairly like rigorously. Kind of like yeah. that, that doesn't seem to matter too much. I don't know, but, but yeah. So things like that. And just, you know, that they need to see each other's faces and they're traumatized by this and, um, you know, th this particular individual, uh, her name is Monique Parsons. Um, she said at that meeting that, and she had her kids there to speak as well, um, that her children, you know, got, they had a medical exemption last year. And uh, she was complaining that the teacher made them sit separately from the other kids in the classroom. Um, so but some of that I, seems, some of that seems like the, the things that the schools, I mean, I'm, again, I'm trying to be objective here. Schools, hmm. parents do have some decisions to make about their own kids, but schools have to make decisions about bringing kids together in a room and keeping all the kids safe. I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenging it's the, thing. It's the greater good, right? I mean, I mean, you, you've got to look at the greater good. Certainly parents have decisions to make, and if they don't want their children to wear masks, then they can homeschool them. 
um, or or they can make make other some kind of other arrangements for for education. But the school district has to look at the greater good, the health of of all the students and the staff and the and the faculty in the school. Right? I mean, it, it's not about individual choice; it's about group decision. And it's all it's sort I, of like a, like like a restaurant. You know, I can't hold you down and force you to wear a mask, but I can decline to serve you if you're not going to wear a mask. If our policy is that you need to wear a mask. I mean, I, I, I feel like, Beth, is this something that's flaring up in other school districts uh, on the East End? Are you hearing this conversation in other places out here? The primary place I've heard it is, has been Riverhead. Um, but um, I don't know, Bob, Bob, have you heard it on the North Fork at all? Not, not aside from Riverhead, I can't say I have. Yeah, I know Sac Harbor has had some similar. Con- there's a, there's a couple of parents who have been very vocal, and I think it's interesting because I think in each of these cases, it's a it's a fairly small group of parents. I think that's 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 raising their voices about it. But but vocal. I mean, West Hampton Beach. West Hampton Beach before, yeah, before before the before the governor's mandate, West Hampton Beach, um, there were a, a large group of parents in in a school board meeting a month or two ago that were that were raising a lot of the same issues and, and were opposed to um, to mandating, you know, kids wear masks and stuff. So, so it's out there, certainly. Yeah. And some of this stuff comes from kind of surprising corners, like the healthcare workers who don't want to get vaccinated, even though they've seen some of the worst of what happened last year. Yeah, it's well, very and a lot of, and, and a lot of them are, are now with the, with the new vaccine mandate, you know, along the same lines. There was a story in um, in, in Newsday, of, of people, not not just healthcare workers, but workers in general who who have said that um, that they're willing to get fired um, from from their jobs or leave their jobs if, if you know, if they're in, if they're made to, uh, you know, to wear ma- or to, to get vaccinated, which which I think is interesting. Without question, it's an it's an escalation. I mean, when, when you use the restaurant analogy, you know, you can you can refuse service to somebody in a restaurant. That's one thing. But when someone is taking a principled stand on this, what they feel is a principled stand and they lose their livelihood because of it, um, that's a lot higher stakes. I mean, I think we're entering a different phases, but we also schools are pretty much all back in now uh, on the on the East End. Bob, school sports have started again, right? And it, is this a different uh, season than we've seen in the past? Yeah, it's definitely a different feel than uh, what we had this past, uh, you know, this, the second half of this past winter season. All, all, on Long Island, all three sports seasons were played basically in uh, the first six months of 2021. Rules changed and... Uh, yeah, we, we saw athletes playing with masks on, uh, coaches, officials, and then things loosened up, you know, uh, as we went into regress through the various seasons. But, but this fall, it, it really does seem like, at least, at least on the athletic fields, it feels like life is back to normal, which is... Is that right? Yeah. You know, it's almost like for a couple hours, you can forget, oh, yeah, we're in a pandemic, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing... Uh, Seeing these, you know, I, I mean, I've known this for a long time, but I think the pandemic is a reminder once again of the value of sport. Um, you know, you could say on one hand, yeah, it's just fun games, you know, it doesn't really matter who wins or loses, you know, it's not a big deal. But it's just this has been a reminder to the athletes, uh, the high school athletes, just, just how and even even to other people, not even just the athletes, it's just you said the athletes, but 
just how how important sports are to them. It's just a it's a valuable. Uh, it brings in a lot of things: social social skills. Uh, it's it's like I said, it's like for a couple hours you can forget about your worries, you can forget about your problems. It's just you're out of game. But uh, yeah, it's it's, it's been uh, it's been uh, a nice experience to, to get back on the field again and see uh, and see people having fun, you know, enjoying themselves. We've had some interesting things too. I I covered uh, Greenport's uh, first football game in three years uh, last Friday night, and uh, new coach making his debut, and uh, and they won twenty to six of a wine dance. It ended a ten game winning streak. And, uh, you know, there was just a lot of excitement. You know, the crowd was thrilled. And, uh, you know, it, it just made you think, wow, this is... Bob, do you, do you think it'll be different uh, when, when we move into the, the winter sports season and, and sports start to move inside? Does that change the equation? Yeah, I do think so. I do think it's... <laughs> I think that's going to be different. Because, uh, you know, even now we do have indoor sports. Uh, we have girls, boys, volleyball. Uh, I haven't covered a volleyball match yet, but uh, of course, you got to wear a mask in, indoors. Um, you have to wear a mask indoors. Uh, but I, I, that's what I'm afraid. I'm afraid I think it's going to be almost like you're going to feel like it's a step forward and a step back. I do think things are going to be different in the winter and and also the numbers, you know, with the Delta variant and with people being indoors, these numbers going to go just, just rise up, you know? I'm curious. Do you see masks in the audience in at football games and and outside outdoor activities? At at the games, oh boy, I'm trying. Like at Friday night's game, I, you know, I I hardly see any. If I mm-hmm. see in a crowd, if you might see maybe one, maybe two, and that's it. Which is, I guess you could say it's kind of you know, on one hand it's surprising. On the on the other on the other hand, it's not. Um, I think people when they're outdoors, you know, they feel safer, you know. Yeah. And, and I think there there is an argument this the science backs up to being outside. I think we were talking about seeing all the NFL stadiums a hundred percent full. Uh, and I don't think there were any masks anywhere. Um I but but I think we'll find out shortly how that goes because um uh, you know it's it's there's really no way to know until we till we see what the fallout is from from all this, uh, you know, close quarters outdoors, maybe a lot safer. We'll find out. I think that's important. It's, it's funny that it, Bob Bob said that you know it feels like like normal again with you know with the with the sports seasons returning you know to to normal. But I'm wondering if if the reverse is 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 true. And we've we've talked about this before. If if we're just uh, you know devolving into into the new normal, that COVID is going to be. Uh, a part of our our lives and, and society for um, for for the foreseeable future, if if not you know if not forever, it, you know as as this becomes you know less of a, a pandemic and you know and just becomes part of what we have to deal with um, with normally if, if this is the new normal, which is a good reminder. It's also flu shot season. So uh, time to go out and get flu shots. And it's interesting that the influenza numbers fell uh, last year because we were all sort of staying away from each other. And I love the T-shirt, by the way, that you can buy that says 
when all this is over, there's still some of you people I don't want to get anywhere near. So um, <laughs> I kind of I kind of like that shirt. I think I'm going to buy. This is uh, behind the headlines on WLIWFM 88.3. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Bill Sutton is managing editor of the Express News Group. Our guest today, Beth Young, editor of the East End Beacon. Denise Civiletti, who's editor of Riverhead Local, and Bob Lipa, who's sports editor at the Times Review Media Group. Beth, um, scary. <laughs> I mean, it sort of jumped off the page when we got the press release after our deadlines this week. Uh, but but you were talking about it beforehand. There's a there's a new disease uh, that's being reported among deer, uh, including in Suffolk County, right? Yeah, it's not new so much as it's new to here. Um, uh, but it's this, it's this hemorrhagic, um, see, as soon as you say hemorrhagic, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's transferred to deer by, uh, no CMs. and, uh, it's, it was upstate last year for, for a couple of years, they were seeing it upstate and now it's moving out on the Island as everything is. And um, I guess th this release we got yesterday said that it's now in Nassau and Suffolk. It didn't say where in Nassau and Suffolk, sure. um, but basically that um, the, the deer, uh, they get a fever, their muscles and organs start to hemorrhage, their oh. heads and necks start swelling. They usually find them like they seem like they're having trouble walking and they're trying to get to a water source when they find them dead. Just horrific. But it, we have to stress here, no transmission to humans at this point, right. correct? Right. It's not it's not a concern about it being a, a disease that will will make the leap over to humans. I don't think I, I don't know that much about um, uh, epidemiology, but I'm not sure that the diseases make the jump from deer to humans very easily. Um, I, I, I don't know. Anybody here, an epidemiologist that we can Talking about anybody, I, I, I wouldn't want to speak on that with authority. Don't, don't you wish? Uh, yeah. But well, what they said in the press release and what I found on uh, like the Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine website was that um, it's affecting um, white-tailed deer and there was some other animal that we don't have around here and it, that escapes me. But they also said that it, it is not transmissible by the noceums. Like if they bite them and bite you. Um, you're not going to get it. So it's not like, uh, say, West Nile or, or something like that. Um, and they also uh, said that it's not trans it's not it doesn't affect other animals because people were asking about that. Like, well, my can my dogs get it? And exposure to dead deer doesn't seem to infect other animals like dogs and cats. So, I mean, I guess that's good, but it sounds so awful. I, I would know. think everybody in our in our readers or our, our listenership would would know what a noceum is, but do you want to say it anyway? Because I think that's a colloquial <laughs> term locally, right? Are you going to try that one? They're called midges. Is another <laughs> sort of colloquial term, I think. But they're like little gnats, little uh, yeah, little, little bugs that, that bite you. They bite you on the beach at dusk. Yeah, keep walking. That's them. But again, I feel like it's important for us to underline in red ink here that this isn't something that's that's a, a concern for for human transmission at this point. But but Bob, you know, as someone who's out in the outdoors community and, and familiar, I mean, this is an ongoing debate now is how much deer contribute to uh, sort of a risky 
uh, environment for humans. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of diseases now. I, I know people who've gotten sick from, from Lyme and from babesiosis and other diseases oh, yeah. that, are, that are sort of all uh, related to, to the deer population. This is just another one, another, another uh, disease that's sweeping through uh, a population that in some cases is, uh, is already stressed and probably susceptible. Yeah, just, just another thing to worry about. <clears throat> I mean, I, you know, I'm very conscious nowadays when I'm out and about, and you know, I'm wearing shorts and sneakers and I'm walking around and, um, you know, where am I standing? Am I on grass? Uh, it, you know, it, it just, it's in my mind. I, I know a reporter over the summer who, uh, who texted me and told me he got, he got bit by a tick and he goes, oh my God. I go, where were you? He was at a parade. <laughs> That's one of the things. I guess it's, I mean, I guess it can happen anywhere, but especially out in Eastern Long Island. You know, uh, like I said, with the heavy deer population. Um, I personally never, as far as I know, I've never been bitten by a tick. I've never had Lyme disease or any. So I'll knock on wood, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the DC support report earlier this year saying that Suffolk County has some of the most severe deer overpopulation in the state. Okay. And I think overpopulation is going to make deer more susceptible to, to diseases like that, too. I mean, I, I think that's Already, part, part of the yep. issue. They're not hardy. Um, they're going to be more susceptible to, to diseases like that. Um, I'm not sure what we do with this information, Beth. What does the DEC recommends that we do. Um, they want us to sort of keep an eye out, right? Yeah, they want us to call them if we see sick deer. <laughs> or actually, I think there's a web deer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. What kind of deer? Sick or dead deer. <laughs> oh, sick or dead deer. Okay. That sounds like it'd be a horrific find uh, yeah. if you stumble onto one of the deer that's that suffered from this disease. It's pretty awful stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's move on, but I'm not sure how much more there is to say about deer on that. So, um, Bob, I wanted to talk with you. You, you had a couple of pieces this week, um, obituaries, feature obituaries for a couple of very prominent folks on the East End. Um, I want to talk first about Eddie Partridge, who was co-owner of Riverhead Raceway. Um, tell us a little bit about, about Mr. Partridge and, you know, the role he's played uh, on, East, on the East End, in East End society for years. Yeah, Eddie Partridge uh, lived in uh, Waiting River. He uh, was part of the ownership group that purchased the Riverhead Raceway back in 2015. 2016 was their first season. Um, and uh, he was, uh, not surprisingly, he was a huge motorsports guy. He was just so into it. He, he, uh, I understand he had a, he had a, uh, he was a car owner and he was successful, a successful car owner. Uh, he would go up and down the, the East Coast uh, with his racing teams and uh, it, what they call the, um, the, the NASCAR Wayland Modified Tour. And, and he won a couple of uh, uh, championships in that uh, prestigious uh, tour. Um, <laughs> On Friday night, he was at Richmond Raceway in Virginia. His team, uh, his driver, Ronnie Priest, won a big race. The uh, what they call the uh, Virginia. What is the name of that race? 
I just lost it. Well, it doesn't Genius matter. for race lovers, I think is what it was called. Yeah, he won the race. Yeah. Big race. And uh, you, know, you can imagine, probably on top of the world. And uh, this, he was driving home. Uh, they were coming home to Riverhead uh, for the next day for, for the racing at Riverhead Raceway. And according to the raceway, he suffered what they called a medical episode. And despite the efforts of EMTs and firefighters, he, he, he died. Um, he was uh, he was 68 years old. And this really was a shock to the Riverhead racing community. Um, they after after some thought, they figured, you know, Eddie uh, Partridge would have wanted them to race on Saturday. So they went ahead with Saturday's program. And uh, they had, uh, I was not, I wasn't on the scene, but I, I, uh, I understand all the drivers and the racing teams lined up on the track. A Suffolk County police helicopter flew, flew overhead. It was a very touching tribute uh, to Eddie Partridge as well. It was also part of their, uh, their uh, marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11 terrorist attacks. But Eddie, Eddie Partridge, his, um, his nephew, He's also one of the owners, uh, Tom Gatz of Riverhead. And I spoke to Tom, he's a really nice guy. He, uh, you know, obviously the family is crushed. Uh, Eddie's wife, Connie, was also in that ownership group. Um, and those three, um, you know, they, they, they put forward a big, uh, a capital improvements project. On the uh, they seem like they, they took their ownership with the, you know, a great deal of enthusiasm and Eddie Partridge himself. He, uh, you know, he was described as a, a big man. I think he, they said he was a six, 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 seven. And as big as he was, he had a, a great heart. He loved animals, especially cats. Uh, How did he squeeze into a car? Yeah. Those cars, yeah. Are, the cockpit of those cars is pretty tight for, for a six, 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 seven guy. Maybe that's why. I'm thinking. Maybe in retrospect, maybe that's why he decided. Maybe I better become a car owner. Uh, <laughs> I'm just fascinated by the the racing culture on the East End, and it of course has very deep roots here, and mm-hmm. uh, is really thriving. And, and Riverhead Raceway is is one of the real focal points of it. Right. Yeah. You know, there used to be a number of racetracks on Long Island, and now um, Riverhead Riverhead is home to the only racetrack on Long Island. And uh, some people have credit, credited these three people with, with saving racing on Long Island, you know, with the purchase of the track uh, back six years ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was, um, you know, it's a sad story. He, uh, but I was, uh, Bob Finan, he's been uh, Riverhead Raceway's public relations person for a long, long time. I think this is his 46th year, he told me of announcing wow. that the races and uh he was he was telling me a lot about 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 eddie and his love for the sport and um you know he was kind of saying you know it's you know for, it's it's you know, for, for for eddie to, to to go out to you know to go out that way right after you know maybe maybe this is the way he would have wanted to if he had to end the story coming off on the heels of a great victory um but uh, yeah, riding into the sunset, so to speak, with a, with a victory. Yeah, that's something. You wrote also about someone who was a big figure in another East End industry that's very important: the winery industry. Uh, Ron Gerler, senior. 
Yes, yes. Ryan Gurla, senior of Cut Dog. Um, he was a very impressive man. Um, he was uh, really uh, one of the pioneers of the uh, of the North Fork Vineyard industry. Uh, Ron Gurla, senior, um, was one of the owners of James Ford Vineyards. Back, he his he. Where do I start? I guess. He was in. He was working in his father's plumbing manufacturing business, and I think, like as I've come to understand, like a lot of these, uh, the vineyards, vineyard people who ventured into the vineyard business, he had no background in farming, no background in growing grapes, and back really, in, yeah. I, I, I was really, I was reading reading your story, Bob, and, and I, there was one quote in there along those lines that really stuck out. It. And I, I, it was um, somebody had said that, you know, these these people, we weren't farmers. We were people who liked wine a lot. And and I think and that got them in, into that industry. And I think that was really cool. It's it, yeah, that's that that was the um, that was the quote Charles Massoud of uh, proprietor of Pominock Vineyards told me. He said, yeah, we what we had in common was you, we all like to drink wine and, uh, you know, he, but yeah, he was in the plumbing manufacturing business and. I guess his wife and him, they saw this beautiful property and they found out it was up for auction. They purchased it and they plunged ahead. I, I, to me, I, what I find remarkable is I would think going into business is uh, can be a scary thing under any scenario. But to go into a business that, you know, you're new to, I mean, that takes a lot of courage, I think. But I, I, I interviewed Ron Gurley, senior's son, uh, with Ron Jr., and he was saying, yeah, that, that was his father. His father was a courageous man. He had a vision. Um, so 1980, they purchased this property. It was called Early Rising Farm in Kutjog. And they began planting planting vines. And uh, they made their way. Um, Louisa Hargrave, I wrote this story. She should probably be on the uh, Mount Rushmore of North Fork Vineyard. Hey, Bob, are you shuffling papers around? I think it's interfering with your microphone. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, she was saying how Ron, uh, Ron Gurla Senior, they they uh, they really uh, they really made a really nice Sauvignon Blanc, and that that kind of was their their niche. They uh, uh, the family uh, the family now is still Ron Junior is running the vineyard. And he has his children, a third generation, and he was talking about how uh, I don't think I had room to get into it in the story, in the print story, but he, uh, you know, he would like to obviously see the third generation carry on. And uh, um, the other thing that's really I, interesting, I, really pa pa a passion there, a passion for that for that business that was born. And yeah, yeah it's interesting that the industry's been here long enough now that you're you're it's become a generational industry on on the North Fork now. Yeah. Ron, Ron Sr. was an interesting person because the vineyard part of his life, like it was it was just a slice of his life. He was a pilot training during World War II and the war ended before he was ever called to, into combat. But he piloted planes for like 60 years. He loves, he enjoyed scuba diving, golf uh, was, I mean, he had a lot of interest outside of sailing. Uh, uh, he just bought a Porsche, right? Yeah, that was the quote uh, Charles Massoud was telling me. You know, he said, "What made what it really struck him is Ron, Ron Senior. Here he is, a senior citizen, and, 
And he goes, at a time when, when most senior citizens are looking, for, you know, looking at assisted living facilities, he went out and bought a Porsche. I mean, he just, uh, I, you know, years old. <laughs> he just loved life. And he, I, it sounds like he really lived it to the fullest, you know, which yeah. probably a good lesson for all of us, you know. Yeah, and Denise, let's let's not underplay. I mean, this this is a guy who is really important in an industry that has really become essential for the East End, right? Talk about the winery industry and and how that's been. Uh, it's just been crucial for the East End's development over the last you know couple of de- decades. Uh, it absolutely has, and he was certainly like an early pioneer of of the wine industry on the North Fork, no question about it. Um, and they they, they produced really good wines <laughs> to this day. But, um, you know, I, I, I mean, for one thing, it has preserved a lot of farmland. I mean, start there, you know, I mean, hundreds of acres of farmland have been preserved because they're in, you know, it's in vines and not, you know, in houses and condos. Um, and, the, and they've been preserved, the acreage has been preserved largely without public investment as well, which is really important. Um, so- I wonder what the North Fork would look like without the wine industry if if that if that terroir which is one of my favorite words if the terroir was not there if if we were just a couple of degrees further north or south so that it wasn't such a great uh Mm. circumstance for growing wine what do you think the north fork would look like would those farms still be there would those farms be producing um other crops or would they all be houses at this point i mean i think there'd be yeah I think there'd be a lot more houses or there would be a lot more uh, maybe fallow farm fields. If, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, North, the North Fork would look a lot like the South Fork, perhaps. There, there might be a lot more pumpkin farms, <laughs> corn mazes, maybe, uh, you know. You know, um, but yeah. on, uh, his vineyard, that was the fifth to be planted on the North Fork. And wow. now there are more than three dozen winery tasting rooms on the North Fork. So it's, it's amazing. I mean, yeah. the, the industry has just just grown enormously, and it's Almost obviously like that. a and big part of the appeal. Four seasons now, you know, people yeah, and and we're heading into the fall season now. So the North Fork is all about pumpkins, and yeah, no, I think the word is out, Beth. I'm sorry. <laughs> I also wonder what the success of the wineries here have, what impact that's had on the proliferation of more recent. Uh, alcoholic uh, beverage industry, but with the breweries. And I mean, you look at um, on the North Road, the, 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 I think it's the largest or one of the largest uh, hops farms in the state is in Mattituck, uh, on the North Road in Mattituck. So I don't know, you know, what, but I mean, it, it just seems like things started to coalesce after the wine industry really um, grew and succeeded, right? Yeah, I think it's all kind of interconnected, and the state that yeah. supports supports those industries too, right? The state uh, does a lot to help out distilleries, wineries, uh, places that make uh, the cider. Definitely, I mean, for a lot of years, they were saying you know grapes could work on Long Island because um, it was worth the cost of planting vines on such high value farmland. Whereas if you were going to grow bar- barley, barley was the hard part. It's like growing barley for your beer, um, the land value just didn't make that economically supportable here. So that's why you'll see a lot of the a lot of the breweries that have come up have come up in uh, industrially zoned land because they don't produce enough of the product here for it to be an on farm 
brewery. Right. Gotcha. Very technical thing. Um, but yeah. I mean, they complement each other. You know, you get you know people who one one person in a couple doesn't like wine, the other doesn't like beer, so they'll go to a brewery for half the day and a vineyard for the other half of the day. It's really helped both industries. It was really a big draw to 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 the North Fork. I mean, it's not just about you know, wine sales or, or beer sales or whatever. I mean, just the, the number of people that that come out and, and do those tours, it's, you know, most of the wineries now have tasting rooms and you just see, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people every week and just coming out to the North Fork to um, to enjoy that and, and to and to spend their money. You see a lot. I would also add, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was no, just going to say that local, local people really enjoy it too. I mean, I remember a few years ago when the wineries were like, well, we don't want to emphasize entertainment that much anymore. We want to be, you know, kind of more serious and sort of esoteric. And um, people went nuts because, like, they really like I mean, it's a, a great, you know, there's a lot of venues for live music that you don't otherwise have around here. And right. it was great for local musicians and great for local people who, you know, enjoy the scene as well. So. Yeah, I think music Sorry, and wine go really well together, and yeah. you can't you can't uncouple them. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons the state's always been supportive is the tourism aspect of all of those uh, the wineries, the breweries, the distilleries, um, the cider places, all that stuff. So. This is Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the co-host with Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Bob Lipa from the Times Review Media Group. Um, Bill, this week um, we started hearings in East Hampton on the East Hampton Airport. And um, I'm sort of fascinated by this because East Hampton Town, um, as of this fall, is going to have an opportunity to reconsider whether or not the East Hampton Airport stays open. And it'll also have some opportunity to uh, make some changes in the operation of the airport if it chooses to, because some FAA connections that they had that really limited their options are expiring. So the the town has some decisions to make about the airport, um, but what they're doing now is fielding public comments in a series of, of online workshops that are being held. Uh, but I think the two sides are fairly well charted out. The folks, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a side that says the impact of the airport is so negative as far as the noise and the pollution and, and all of that, that it should be closed and converted to a new purpose. And then the other side says that it's a really critical transportation uh, asset for the East End. And it's also something that, that's that been there forever. It's been there for since I think it's uh, decades and decades. Uh, it's been there uh, for uh, enthusiasts, people who like to fly, but it's become really a transportation hub. Now, this is, this is a, a really key fight, but ultimately it's really just going to come down to the town board making a decision, right? It, it really is. It's a key moment. And, and, and I don't think... Um, there's much indication of which way the town is is going to go. Um, I, I think there are two sides, but I think both sides are in agreement that something has to change. The, the problem is, though, is is if you you know that so so the town has been mulling the idea of closing the airport temporarily, and then and then and maybe re, re, reopening it with some some different restrictions on what kind of flights can um, can take off and land there and, and, and you know, different quotas and stuff. Um, and, and that may not even have to be, you know, a physical closing. They were saying this week that that could just be on kind of on paper. Um, 
But, you know, the big question is, is what happens to that airport traffic? You know, if you do change the airport or close the airport, um, one of the big meetings this week was in, in Montauk. Um, you know, and there's discussion that most of the helicopter traffic that, you know, that so annoys everybody on, on the east end would then just divert to, to Montauk. A lot of the airplane traffic could divert to Gabreski Airport in, in West Hampton. I don't think anybody thinks that that traffic is going to disappear. The people that are flying into and out of, of East Hampton Airport are doing that to, you know, to avoid uh, avoid driving, avoid the traffic issues, avoid, um, you know, to, to make their trips, um, you, you know, easier. And I think at the same time, you don't want to, you don't want to lose um, those people coming out and, and um, spending their money. And, and there's a, a debate over how much, you know, revenue comes from, from travelers in and out of East Hampton in the first place. And one group is saying it's a lot more than, than the town is saying and, and all that, but it, it's just really a, a key critical moment. A town boards, it's going to be a tough decision to, to try to find some kind of compromise that's going to make everybody happy. I don't know that you will make everybody happy. Um, but I, I think everybody agrees something's got to change. Something's got to happen. It's just out of control at this point, the, the number of flights in and out. Just a, just a quick clarification, because I think it was a point of contention. That meeting actually wasn't held in Montauk. It was originally supposed to be, but it ended up being a virtual meeting. And that sort of right. uh, stepped on a lot of toes in Montauk because they felt like they deserved to have a meeting in person out there because they're going I, to be I, I think the attendance to that meeting was kind of restricted and was focused to Montauk people. But yeah, the, yeah. the, the Montauk contingent, um, you know, felt that, that the move to a virtual meeting and it was done because of, um, you know, safety issues and, and COVID and all that. But they felt that that would have been uh, that, that it was done that way to restrict um, to restrict their voice. I mean, there were asked, All of them some, right. not just the Montauk one. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think the, you know, the people in Montauk estimated that if it had been a live meeting that over a thousand people would have turned out, um, you know, and, and I think the meeting was limited to, you know, just over a hundred uh, people virtually. And, and, you know, and the town's argument is because they broke that down into workshops. So they broke, you know, they, they took that hundred people and they broke down into, into uh, a half dozen or more workshops to, to get people talking. I also feel like the town board's hearing that message. I think, I think that, that there is some debate over how much of that traffic would go elsewhere, but clearly Montauk airport, which is a tiny airport, uh, with the helicopter traffic is what we're talking about here, by the way. Um, a lot of the helicopter traffic could end up in Montauk. A lot of it could end up at Gabreski. Uh, Gabreski may get more of the jet flights right. uh, that, that are coming into to East Hampton. There's also the, the helipad. There's a municipal helipad in Southampton Village um, that's sort of out in the middle of the estate section that could suddenly see a lot more traffic. But Beth, there was one part of this conversation that I thought was really interesting that, that I feel like may have gotten buried a little bit. The helicopter companies have said, we're going to find a place to fly to one way or the other. We're, we're not going away. If you close the airport, this traffic has got to go somewhere. And one of the, one of the things that's at least on the table is the idea of um, sort of makeshift floating helipads. That's not something I think that's legal right now on the East End, but it's it exists in some other places like Miami, and, and there are places that have done this. And the helicopter companies have said seaplanes 
landing and maybe docking in Sag Harbor is a possibility. I mean, this has the potential that that it's like a waterbed. You push down on one place, it's just going to pop up everywhere else. And, and it sort of makes it everybody's problem. Yeah, there's a little airstrip in Matatuck that's really not even used anymore, which everybody... Don't, don't tell them. Oh, they know about it. <laughs> oh, they know about it. So, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, I guess if it goes a bunch of places, maybe you'll get more less complaints from one particular area but uh the other thing yeah go ahead oh just pertinent to that point like so if they land like at mattatuck or west hampton or you know there's two really giant runways in calverton that they still have the problem of getting to where they're going how do they like what will they 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 don't want to be stuck in traffic on 39 right i mean Mm -hmm. what happens What's the conversation about that? Yeah, I mean, I I guess uh, you fly, fly into Cabreski and take an airport to uh, take a helicopter to uh, to Southampton, and you know, and, and you're all set. There you go. Still, but you uh, still need to land. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Uh, no, I agree with you. I mean, that's why most of the traffic is to East Hampton now because it's ideal. It's closest to where a lot of the people. One thing they had said that was surprising, and I think we mentioned it last week, is that they had done some studies and a lot of people flying into East Hampton, um, I think the the jet traffic or maybe it was the helicopter traffic, were actually their destinations were point west points west of, of the airport. So it's not those people wouldn't be going to Montauk or, or necessarily to, to other spots that those are people that were landing in East Hampton and driving west against the heavy traffic, I guess, to get to places. So so that, it, you know, if they're going to if they go to Gabreski instead, then they're maybe even a little closer to their destinations. It's really so interesting. East Hampton is east of the traffic. Yes. It just yeah, that makes sense. But that is the debate is it's it's part of the, the traffic infrastructure. It's how people get here and whatever choices they make, wherever they land, they're going to join the, the traffic stream at that point, too. And more, Gabreski, as, as you say, those those options won't solve any of that. More, more work for the Uber drivers. That's true. Now, we, we also had the, the restart of the commuter connection. Um just recently. And it'll be interesting to see if that affects the traffic pattern. And Bill, we also have a story about the fact that so that the town has been working and experimenting with some flashing lights uh, at key intersections to try and address the, the traffic issue on the South Fork. Um, how'd that go? Um, well, they, they actually <clears throat> only did one intersection because the state was was not cooperative in some of the other intersections. But they did um, they did the, the intersection at Montauk Highway and New Place Road in um, in Hampton. Right at the canal, right? Right. And they, they did it for a few weeks. They eliminated those people like me that come down and then do the U-turn um, to, to go east. And, and the idea was if they did a flashing light there, then you would encourage people to to use Montauk Highway and not some of the side streets and that traffic wouldn't have to stop for red lights and would just go through. And um, we anecdotally, Kitty or Kitty Merrill talked to um, through social media, a couple different commuters who who typically commute from Hampton base to Southampton. And they said the traffic was was much better. Their commute time was was cut down by 15 to 20 minutes. 
with the flashing light program. And I think the uh, town officials were very happy with it and, and are gonna continue to push for doing that at, at more intersections. And, and you know, one quote from her story, and it was either from, from uh, the supervisor or, or the police chief was, we're not gonna come up with one major traffic solution, but if we can come up with a bunch of smaller solutions, that overall is, is going to make traffic better and make the commute better. Um, so I, it's very, very interesting that just changing that one light for, and I think it was only for a couple hours every morning, 5.30 to 7.30, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's important to note, note, though, that there was a police presence there kind of helping to, to direct the traffic. And I'm wondering how much that had to do with changes in traffic patterns rather than just the light if you didn't have if you didn't have the cop here and cop there and you just had had the traffic light would would people be trying to uh tie, would people tie up traffic trying to do that u-turn or come up off canoe place on the montauk highway and you know and create some of the old issues again and police chief stevens granaki pointed out that's a very manpower intensive solution right to to one intersection that's really not sustainable um, year round, certainly, and maybe even not sustainable in the long term for the for the town department. So but you, you have to give, um, you know, Supervisor Jay Schneiderman credit for trying this out, for trying different things, trying to find, you know, some kind of solutions to to the traffic um, problem, because it certainly is a crisis. Kitty Merrill was busy for us this week. Um, she also wrote a story uh, that I want to ask you guys about, which uh, in a couple of minutes we have left. Um, so outdoor dining. Uh, appears to be something that's going to stick around post-pandemic in places that were sort of hesitant about it before. Um, the villages and towns are all looking at setting new policies moving forward with an eye towards allowing more outdoor dining because it seems to be a real amenity now that we've done it out of necessity during the pandemic. But I know at least one official was worried that, you know, you don't want it to turn into a runaway train. Uh, with with a whole bunch of places. I want to ask you guys, have you all, um, you've all, I assume, gone to restaurants and dined outside this past summer? Is that fair to say? Sort of. Kind of sort of. Yeah. <laughs> Bob? No. Yeah, I have. <laughs> a few. Bob, have you been willing to do that? Yeah, I haven't. Oh, you haven't? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just too busy or just not something you're comfortable doing? It's actually a combination of both, I'd say. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm, no, no, I haven't done outdoor dining. I, Fair I've enough. Has people dining outside and said, "Man, it's too hot to do that today." I would yeah. never yeah. give it. <laughs> I wonder how it's going to be this fall now, um, yeah. and and it really has changed the complexion of of a lot of the villages. Like Southampton Village um, is a very different place in the summertime than usual by allowing more outdoor dining to the point where I think the next question is, uh, you know, it does become a question of how much do you allow, but it, it's, it's got a, a nice feel in the summertime at least, but I wonder if it's something that can continue into the fall and spring shoulder seasons. Well, are the limits to the occupancy still, they're still set by the health department. They are, yes. Right. So if you have outdoor dining, the health department will let you. If you have outdoor dining, you're supposed to replace those, the, the yeah. seats indoors so that you have that same capacity. Um, I think a lot of it's going to depend on, on Delta variant and the numbers. And if, if the numbers keep going up and, and all that, and people get uncomfortable going into the restaurants, I think I've been, I've been pretty comfortable going into restaurants, but um, you know, I'm, I'm noticing that, you know, that, that some people I, I think are, 
um, are a little more concerned again as the numbers ride. Um, it, it's weird. It's weird. It, I had to to run into a McDonald's the other day, and, and they're requiring masks masks again where they weren't, and they're saying you know CDC guidance and and all that. So. Um, certainly the, the outdoor dining has kept the restaurants um, in, in business over the last 18 months. And it has been something that has helped them out a lot. Um, and people should support them if, if they can. Um, I, I think time is just going to tell and the numbers are going to tell. Denise, have you seen that up in Riverhead too? Or are you, are you oh, they, getting more uh, outdoor? Yeah, I mean, they've moved forward with, um, uh, you know, legislation to make it permanent, actually, to make sidewalk dining. A lot of places have right. outdoor patios and things like that. And that not that was never affected by this at all. But um, they went they made the, the, the sidewalk dining permanent. And, you know, there's this kind of limited ability to really have much sidewalk dining in in Riverhead. Um, the sidewalks are not that wide in most places. And, um, you know, the atmosphere i mean i i, I ate out at, at parabell before the pandemic we sat on the sidewalk just because um you know we said let's try it because we wanted to see what it was like and there's so much truck traffic on main street in riverhead mm. that it's kind of like not pleasant honest honestly i mean that might not be you know a politic thing to say but it just it's it's um it's not you know it's, it's no, loud. i can see it I can see a comparison that <laughs> it would be a different experience in Bridgehampton, say, than yeah. in Southampton or Sag Harbor, which are off of the primary uh, travel line. So um, I think yeah. it's interesting that it's that it that it may stick around uh, certainly into the fall a little bit with uh, see space heaters out on some of the, some. Mm -hmm. There's some nice North Fork restaurants that do that. Uh, they're trying at, to do it more year round, and that's going to continue. I mean, like the Cooperage, for instance, has a nice outdoor patio area and they had those space heaters last year and they had outdoor dining till well into you know the colder weather so um yeah. i'm sure that will continue so. it's a nice nice change i think we're out of time on behind the headlines uh but thank you guys i want to thank uh, all of our panelists, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Bob Leba from the Times Review Media Group. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, thanks for listening to Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. We'll be back next weekend on WLIWFM. <laughs>